Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit sozosmtx.com. Thank you, Joel. How many of you guys are grateful for our lead pastors, Joel and Lauren Lowry? Can we give it up for these guys? Yay. It's good to have you back. We told you we wouldn't burn it down while you guys were gone, so (laughs) congrats to us, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Really just excited to share my heart. And um, I'm going to start with just a little bit of prayer, if you guys are good with that. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for who you are to us, God. And I just pray this morning that you would reveal yourself to us in new ways. And I pray that we would see you this morning collectively as a family, maybe in ways we've never seen you before, God. And this morning, I pray that as we see you, God, that we'll become like you. God, that as we behold you, we will be transformed by you. So, Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see, God. I pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God. God, that our hearts would be opened, gripped, and conquered by the love of God this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to start by just sharing um, probably a familiar story with you guys. Uh, There's a group of people in the 1700s known as the Moravians. How many of you guys are familiar with the Moravians? The Moravians uh, were uh, initiated a missions movement that till to this day is still considered one of the greatest missions movements in, in history. And uh, it's this group of people, the Moravian people in the mid-1700s, and most of them um, were refugees in a, a small town called Hernhut, Germany. And in Hernhut, there was a man named Count Zinzendorf, and he gathered these refugees to create a community where they served one another, they worshiped together, they prayed together. And um, out of the story of the Moravians comes a famous story, and that's what kind of uh, sparked my memory as I was preparing this week. It's a famous story of a group of Moravian missionaries um, who had it in their heart to reach the unreached peoples of the world. There was a small group of these Moravian missionaries that committed themselves to going to a small island in the West Indies. Now, this island was known as a slave island. And they knew that in order to reach the people in this small island in in the West Indies, the only way for them to even get there was to sell themselves into slavery. How profound, right? This group of people that said, we will become slaves to reach slaves. And so they gather their things, they're at port, they're getting ready to go. And uh, the famous quote that has become the uh, motto of the Moravian church, and honestly, most of modern mission movements today is this, that as they were sailing out, they had just left their, their wives, their children, their families all behind. They look back at their family and they say this, they say, may the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. This was their mantra. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. If you just take a look at this group of people and you just kind of at a glance, if you will, you kind of have to ask the question, what was it that motivated these people to do such a thing, right? And I mean, just looking at it from a natural sense, you're like, these guys are crazy, 
I mean, they're literally knowing that they're going here and they're more than likely to not come home. They're probably going to be killed here, but there was something that gripped them that said, we're gonna go and may the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Now, if you look back at the Moravians, there's some fascinating things that were happening at the same time. In the mid-1700s, uh, 1747 to be exact, there was a prayer meeting that happened in this, this village of Hernhut. Uh, about 12 to 15 people gathered together. And uh, one night, uh, mostly women were gathered together in this prayer meeting. And, and, and the, the story goes that around midnight, the Holy Spirit fell on this prayer meeting. The Holy Spirit fell on them in such a way that Count Zinzendorf came the next day and said, we have to keep going. And this prayer meeting that started in 1747 is known to have not ended 24 hours for over 100 years. A 100-year prayer meeting that started when the Holy Spirit fell on these people. And so as you think of the story, uh, the famous story of the people that said, may the lamb who was slain receive the reward of suffering, they weren't just going on a whim. They actually had seen something of Jesus in this place of prayer that so gripped their heart that said, we'll do whatever he asks of us. We'll, we'll go wherever he, he sends us to go. There's many stories that come out of the Moravians. One of them, a man named John Wesley. Most of you guys are probably familiar with him. He founded the Methodist Church. John Wesley says it was in a Moravian prayer meeting where his heart was strangely warmed and he believed that he was born again. Uh, another man named uh, uh, William Carey, who is known as the father of modern missions, it was in a Moravian prayer meeting where God burdened his heart for the nations of the earth. And so this Moravian church where in modern society, when you look at the church, what you find is, is usually the statistics would show that one in every 2,000 people are sent cross-culturally as missionaries. In the Moravian church, it was every one in 10 Every one in 10 people said, we will give our lives to reaching the ends of the earth with this mantra, the lamb who was slain, let him receive the reward of his suffering. The reason I share this story with us as we start today is because as I was meditating, I couldn't help but think that there was something that so gripped their heart that said, we'll do whatever he asks us. And I believe that they saw something of Jesus. They saw something of the Lamb of God in the place of devotion to him that caused them to be transformed completely. This morning, I wanna to talk to us for a second. If you're taking notes, the title of my sermon is this. Simply put, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. I believe this is what the Moravians were doing in those prayer meetings. They were beholding the Lamb of God, and it, and it led them to something. It did something in them, and the fruit of their life were still telling their stories today. But the significant part about the Moravians was not their mission work. It was that they saw Jesus. They saw Jesus and something of the nature and character of Jesus so gripped their hearts that they said, we will go and our prayer, our only mantra is this, let the one, the lamb who was slain, receive the reward of his suffering. I want you to turn with me to John chapter one, verse 29 this morning. I wanna share just a quick thought with you from John the Baptist, a familiar verse there on the screen. John chapter one, we find John the Baptist who is the cousin of Jesus, and uh, he's a wild man, right? He's, he's wearing like skin on him, and he's eating locust and honey. I've always kind of tried to imagine what that diet would be like, you know? It's the modern carnivore diet, just eating bugs and honey all the time. He, he was crazy. He was a prophet. 
the cousin of Jesus, and he's in the wilderness, and it says that he's baptizing people just outside of Bethany, and he's baptizing them into the baptism of repentance. Essentially, what he's doing is, is he's preparing the way for Jesus to come. So he's baptizing people, this wild man in the wilderness, and the Jewish leaders, they send both Levites and they send priests into the wilderness to ask John the Baptist who he is. They come to John the Baptist and they say, are you, are you the Messiah? And he said, no, I'm not the Messiah. And they said, are, are you Elijah? Who are you? And he says, no, I'm not Elijah either. And then they ask, are you the prophet? And he says, no. And they say, well, then who are you? Would you give us something to go back to the religious people to tell them? What do you say about yourself? And he says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one that you do not know. He's already in your midst and you don't know who he is, but he's the one who comes after me in the straps of his sandals. I'm not even worthy to untie. And then we pick up in John chapter one, verse 29. It says, the next day, John saw Jesus. Now, here's the thing. John and Jesus would have grown up together. I mean, they're cousins, right? But in John's prophetic ministry in the wilderness, it says that he, he saw Jesus. He saw Jesus in a different light that he had ever seen him before. And he saw Jesus coming to him, and he turns and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, this was the pinnacle of John's ministry. All these years of prophesying, all these years of rebuking the Pharisees, all these years of making the path straight and preparing the way of the Lord, the pinnacle of his ministry comes to this point where when he sees Jesus, he turns and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In essence, what John is saying is, is look at him. Don't look at me. Don't look to the Pharisees anymore. Don't look to the religious system of the day. Get your eyes off of all the religious activities and behold him. This is the one we've been waiting for. He's here and he's in our midst. You see, this was the highest moment in John's calling. And I believe for us today that the highest calling that we can receive from him is simply this, to behold him, to fix our eyes on him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I, I, I kept hearing this week the song that we sang this morning, Come and Behold. I asked Nate, I was like, hey, can we sing this song? It stuck in my head. Um, but I love the words, come and behold him. Isn't he fascinating? Come and behold him. Isn't he captivating? Isn't he beautiful? I, I, I really believe that in this hour, the church is coming into a season that God is raising up his church that's proclaiming a more beautiful gospel. A gospel that's free from religion. A gospel that's more captivating. A gospel that truly astonishes the heart. A gospel that's full of fast hold. The Lamb of God. Here, here's what I believe. That something actually happens to us and in us as we simply behold him. Something happens in us as we behold the Lamb of God. If you need breakthrough in your life, if you need something to shift, if you're lacking vision, if you're lacking identity, if you're struggling with sin, whatever it is that you need from him this morning, the solution is simple. Behold him. Look at him. Set your gaze on Jesus. Something happens to us as we behold the Lamb of God. 
I want to look at uh, probably a fairly unfamiliar story in Genesis chapter 30 this morning. In Genesis chapter 30, we pick up Jacob and Laban. Uh, Jacob, who is married to Rachel, Rachel's father's name is Laban, and he's tending the flock of Laban. Now, Jacob has been through the ringer a little bit, okay? Uh, Jacob had a promise to him that he was going to get to marry one of the daughters of, of Laban, right? And uh, he got tricked in the middle of the night, and he ended up with the wife he didn't want, and uh, he, he was with her for seven years, and then God gave him Rachel, right? Um, and so he waited all this time, and then after God gave him Rachel, he uh, had been serving Laban faithfully, and he comes to Laban, and he says, I think it's time for me to go now. <laughs> I'm ready to get out of here, uh, go back to my home, and the only thing I ask is that you would be kind enough to just give me the spotted and the speckled sheep from your flock. So Laban says, yeah, sure, we could give you the spotted and speckled sheep of the flock. And then we pick up here in verse 37 of Genesis 30. So Jacob, however, took fresh cut branches from poplar, almond, and plane trees, and he made white stripes on them by peeling the bark and exposing the white inner wood of the branches. It's like, all right, Jacob, what are you up to today? We, we know Jacob is the trickster, right? He's got some tricks up his sleeve. And then it says, then he placed the peeled branches in all the watering troughs so that they would be directly in front of the flocks when they came to drink. And then when the flocks were in heat and came to drink, they mated in front of the branches and they bore young that were streaked, speckled, and spotted. Isn't the Bible strange? <laughs> I'm like, I, I tell people, people are like, church is boring. I'm like, no, you're boring. The Bible's not boring. <laughs> It's interesting, right? You kind of look at this story and you have to ask, like, what is this random story doing in the Bible? Unless it's not random, right? Unless it's pointing us to a greater reality. So we have Jacob and he says, okay, you promised that I could have the spotted and speckled sheep. So I'm going to take sticks and I'm going to whittle the sticks. How many old timers in here that used to sit on the porch and whittle? I used to do that with my grandpa. And he starts striping the sticks and he makes spots. And, and, and stripes and speckles on these branches and he puts them in front of a, a, an unspotted, unspeckled flock and he puts them in their water trough knowing that when they came to the water trough and they made it, maybe what they set their eyes on would change what they produced. So he puts the sticks in front of the flock and they come and they're drinking the water and as they drink from the water and as they mate, it actually changed what they reproduced. You see, here's the principle that the story teaches us. It's a principle that applies to our lives, that we become what we behold. We become what we behold, and there's a further step to that, that we actually reproduce what we've become. We become what we behold, and we reproduce what we become. So as they drink from the water, it actually changes what kind of offspring they have. And I want to say to you this morning that you will produce the likeness of that which you behold. The fruit of your life will reflect your gaze. What we behold transforms us to the point that the fruit that we bear actually looks different. Who we are changes at the core of our lives. So something happens to us as we behold him. Something happens to us as we fix our eyes on Jesus. And I, I want to talk to us for just a few minutes about what it is that we become as we behold the Lamb. So if we become something as we behold the Lamb, I want to talk for a second about what do we become as we behold Him. The first thing 
that we become, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. The first thing that we become as we behold the lamb is we become holy. As we behold the holy one, we ourselves become holy. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21 says that he who knew no sin was made to be sin, or maybe your translation says became sin, so he became something so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. As we behold Jesus, we become his righteousness. You see, righteousness is not about what you do, it's something that you've become. It's the transaction of the cross, it's this supernatural exchange in which he becomes our sin and we become his righteousness. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, I love this verse. It says, and by his will, this is the will of Jesus, by his will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once and for all. I want you to focus on these words right there at the top right of the screen. It says, by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. This is significant because it doesn't say we are becoming holy or we will become holy. It says we have been made holy. You see, holiness is not what you do. It's something you've become. He made you holy. Some of your translations may say this, that we have been sanctified through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. I love the word sanctified, and I love that some translations use the word sanctified. It's the Greek word hagiazo. Hagiazo can literally be translated either sanctified or holy. Now, just to kind of help us a little bit, I don't know about you, but I grew up learning about sanctification, and sanctification was taught to me this way. That when you believe on Jesus, you get saved, right? But then you're going to be in a process of sanctification for the rest of your life. Kind of reminds me of Paul in Galatians when it says, he comes to the church at Galatia and he says, you foolish Galatians, who's tricked you? And he says, you thought that what was started by the Spirit is now going to have to be perfected in works of the flesh. Sanctification is not something that we grow into. We have been made sanctified. He sanctified us. There would have meant he sanctified us. Anybody need one of these? There we go. Congrats, you. He sanctified us by his body once and for all. And so sanctification isn't really even a process. It's an event that happened to us at the cross. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't grow and, and, and living holy lives. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that because Jesus made us holy, now we could do whatever we want. But what I do want to set as a standard here is to recognize that you don't have to work to become sanctified. He sanctified you, and the fruit of your lives should reflect the event that happened at the cross. We have been sanctified by the body of Jesus once and for all. Contrary to popular belief, to be holy is not about behavior. A lot of us, when we think about holiness, when we think about living holy lives, we think it means to do the right thing. But to be holy has nothing to do with behavior. The word holy literally means this, to be set apart. And it's less about being set apart from something and more about being set apart to someone. What makes us holy is not just that God freed us from sin, but that he made us one with him. And so we've become sanctified, we've become holy, and it's about our relationship to him. We've been set apart unto him. And this is important 
Because religion will try to teach us what not to do and what to do without ever really giving us true holiness. At best, the only thing religion could give us is a skewed view of morality. But God doesn't just create us to be morally good people. He wants to make us holy. He wants to set us apart unto himself for a greater purpose. I want to look at Colossians chapter 2 for a second. We're going to read through the first few verses of chapter 3. Colossians 2, Paul writes this. He says, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? What are the rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Sounds like religion, right? Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. He says, why do you submit to the rules of the world? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But listen, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgences. How many of you guys have had that experience with religion before? Where you're like, I did everything they asked of me. I stopped smoking, I stopped drinking, I stopped cussing, I stopped watching this stuff. I stopped doing all of these things, but as Paul said, it does not have the power to restrain our sensual indulgence because it's not holiness. Refraining from things is not holiness. Being set apart unto Jesus is holiness. And so he picks up in, in, in chapter three, which there's really no chapter break here in Paul's writing. And he says, since then, you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of, of God. Essentially what he's saying is, is, hey, it's not about trying harder to refrain from things. It says, since you've been raised with Christ, Set your eyes on things above. Essentially what he's saying is, is behold him. Fix your gaze upward. If you've been raised with Christ, then change your perspective. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So holiness, to become holy, as we become holy through beholding Jesus, is not about what we do, but it's about who we belong to. He makes us holy. Church, he has made you holy. As you've set your eyes on Jesus, you've become something. You've become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So as we behold Jesus, we become holy. The second thing that we become, this is probably my favorite, is that we become convinced. As you behold Jesus, you will become convinced of who you really are. And I believe more than ever, the church needs convincing. <laughs> we need to be convinced of how he sees us. And I do believe that that's what God is doing in this generation is he's convincing a generation of his goodness. He's convincing us of who we really are. He's saying enough with the lower beliefs about yourself. I'm here to convince you of who you really are. As we behold Jesus, we become convinced. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I want to read this from the New King James Version. In verse 18, it says this, but we all with unveiled faces. So he's picking up in 2 Corinthians 3, he's been contrasting the two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant. He starts a few verses later saying that Moses uh, 
covered his face with a veil. As he went up to the mountain, had an encounter with God, he had to put a veil over his face because the glory of God was so strong. He makes the contrast there saying that what Moses experienced pales in comparison to what we experience now in this new covenant. And then he, he says this, he says, but we with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror, say mirror, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. Your version may say something like this, that we with unveiled faces contemplate the glory of the Lord. But the Greek word there, I'm not even gonna try to pronounce it, kato pritzomenoi. Thank you, that's great. It's really the only time we see this word show up in the New Testament that I know of, and Paul is using this word specifically and literally translated, it's why I use this version, literally translated, it says beholding as in a mirror. It's this mysterious idea that he's trying to present to us. Have you guys ever thought about this? What, what does a mirror do? Yeah, it reflects, right? It reflects, and so he's saying that we're beholding God, but we're beholding him as in a mirror. It's kind of this idea of reflection, that something is reflecting as we're beholding him. I believe it's this idea, that the most powerful thing about beholding God is not our beholding him. It's our beholding him beholding us. He's saying, I want you to look at Jesus, and as you do, what you're gonna find is that he's looking at you. We're beholding him as in a mirror. We're beholding him as in a mirror, that as we gaze upon his face, it's not simply what we see in his eyes, it's what we see in his eyes seeing us. This is how we become convinced. You see, the way that we become convinced is when we begin to recognize that as I see him, I see him seeing me, and what he sees in me blows my mind. You know, I was thinking about the first time that I met Caitlin, and um. This Hattie girl over here just all over the place this morning. I love it. First time I met Caitlin and laid eyes on my wife, there was something that happened in my heart because of what I saw in her. But here's the reality. The powerful thing about that encounter was not just, it, it, it happened a little later in our first date. I kind of saw a little glimmer of it. I was like, oh, this girl's awesome. I don't know what she thinks of me. But there was a moment Whereas I was looking at her and I saw that there was potential that she may feel the same way about me. And that's what captured my heart. Because it was like, yeah, she's amazing, but it doesn't matter how amazing she is if she thinks I'm not that cool. But when I saw in her seeing something in me, something came alive of like, oh, this is good. You see, this is what happens to us as we see him. That if you look in his eyes and you have a clarity, if you have a perception of him that is right, what you find is that he sees something in you that will blow your mind. And it will convince you. It will convince you of who you really are. It's beholding him as he's beholding us. If you never want to be the same, just find out how he feels about you. Just find out that he's actually moved by you. Find out that you're actually the apple of his eye. That he sees you and he doesn't just tolerate you, he's obsessed with you. You see, the church needs to understand who they are to him. Who we are to him because as we see the reflection of ourselves in his eyes, it will produce in us a confidence 
that has the ability to be unshaken by storms and God will mark a generation of people, a group of people that is fearless because they've seen his eyes towards them and they've been convinced that if my God is for me, it doesn't matter who's against me. As we behold Jesus, we become convinced. Are you convinced this morning? Are you convinced of how he sees you? Colossians chapter one says that we are holy in his sight without blemish, free from all accusation. He doesn't see a spot, stain, or wrinkle when he sees you. And it should do something to our hearts. I want you to just close your eyes with me for a second. I just want you for a second to imagine the God of the universe, the one who spoke the world into existence. I just want you to see him with his gaze set upon you. For some of us, it makes us squirm a little bit, right? Like, what would he find in me that is pleasing to him? But the scripture says that as he looks upon you, his thoughts are full of pleasure and delight, and they outnumber the grains of sand in the entire planet. This is how he sees you. You're his favorite and he wants to convince you of it this morning. You can open your eyes. As we behold him, the lamb of God, we become convinced of who we really are. The third thing that I believe that happens to us as we behold him is that we become lamb-like. As we behold the lamb of God, we become lamb-like. This messes with some of us, especially as men, we're like, I don't wanna be a lamb. I want to be something else, you know. <laughs> As we behold the lamb, our nature begins to reflect the nature of the one that we behold. There's a reason in the book of Revelation over 30 times Jesus is mentioned as the lamb. Jesus is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. I want to say this, that Jesus as the lamb of God was not plan B. Jesus as the lamb of God was not God's afterthought after we blew it in the garden. Revelation teaches us that he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He's always been this way. This is who he is. It reveals to us the character of God, the nature of God. And I, I want to challenge a thought this morning, something I heard just a few weeks ago. I can't remember if it was on Facebook or where it was. You hear a lot of stuff on Facebook these days, right? Yeah. Um, I don't, it wasn't anyone here, so I'm not, this isn't like a passive aggressive thing or anything, but um, I read a post that reminded me of something that I heard my entire life growing up, and, it, and, it, and I just couldn't help but read it in like a Pentecostal voice, and it was like, you know, he came the first time as a lamb, but he's coming back like a lion, right? How many of you guys have heard that from, you know, Aunt Jenny on Facebook posting? Just crazy, you know? Um, I grew up hearing this, and... Um, I always took it as like something that was in the Bible. You know, he came as a lamb the first time, but he's coming back as a roaring lion, as if this idea of the nature of God somehow shifted, the nature that we find complete and fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, that somehow it's gonna be shifted and he's coming back as a vicious lion. And I wanna challenge the thought for a second, because I was taught that, that he's coming back as a lion, right? There's one mention of the lion of the tribe of Judah in the book of Revelation, um, and when it's, there, there's another passage in Genesis chapter 30 where we see that uh, different tribes are being identified by animals and Judah is identified as a lion's cub. 
Um, but in Revelation chapter five, we see the picture of the lion of the tribe of Judah. And what we see in, in the story is, is an elder came to John in his vision. And he says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah who is conquered, he's worthy to open the scroll. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he has conquered and he is worthy to open the scroll. And so he responds to the elder by turning and looking. He says, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so John turns and looks and what he sees is, is he sees a lamb slain, seated in the center of the throne. Here's the reality. The line of the tribe of Judah, we know that it's, it's mostly to deal with tribal identify, identification. It's identifying Jesus as the lion from the tribe of Judah. But he says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when John actually looked at the lion, what he saw was a lamb slain, seated at the center of the throne. All throughout scripture, when we hear about the one who is ruling and reigning today on the throne, he is likened unto a lamb that is slain. So we find the book of Revelation in, in Revelation chapter 21 where it talks about uh, the, the, the restored city. It, what we see is, is that the one who is ruling and reigning is the lamb. And there doesn't need to be a sun or a moon because the lamb is the light. All throughout Revelation, we find him that he is a lamb. And so I wanna challenge the notion that, because what that does sometimes is, is we're like, well, Jesus was really nice the first time. But if we want to be a part of the great mission or his whatever it is at the end of things, then we need to toughen up and be like the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's a lamb and he's always been a lamb and he will always be a lamb. You see, the lamb slain is seated on the throne showing us this. This is how God reigns. This is how God conquers the world. This is how God rules. And more importantly than God ruling is how he rules. It's how he conquers and if we want to be a people who advance the kingdom, we have to know how do we do it. We reflect the lamb who is seated on the throne. We follow in the way of, lamb, of the lamb, sacrificial love, laying down our lives for others, washing the feet of the world. No control, no manipulation, not conquering through power and force as the world defines it, but through sacrificial love. This is how the kingdom advances. In John chapter 13, we talk about this often. Jesus gives his disciples a new commandment. They knew about the old commandment. They came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in all the law and prophets? He, he answers their question um, by telling them the most important command in the Old Testament. He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's a good commandment, right? The issue with that is, is there's gotta be some questions as to what does love mean? Like, what do you mean to love the Lord my God and what does it mean to love my neighbor? We even find it later, you know, they're still questioning it. Who is my neighbor, Jesus, right? They're trying to bring definition to what he said. Jesus comes in, he says, a new command I've given you. It says to love one another. As I have loved you, so you love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Love one another, how? As I have loved you. You see, the difference in this commandment is there was no more question as to what love looks like because the embodiment of love was standing in their midst. Jesus actually gave them definition as to what love looks like. And so love isn't abstract anymore. He says, this is the way you love in the way that I've loved you. How did he love? 
He was the lamb slain. He was arms wide, pierced, crucified on behalf of us. No one took his life from him. He gave it to us. He laid it down for us. This is what love looks like. And so he's saying, in the same way that I love you, now you go love the world around you. I'm gonna close here in just a second. But I believe the Bible gives us a really beautiful, simple picture of what this kind of love looks like. It's in Matthew chapter five, Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And I know this is simple stuff, and I know that we've heard this our whole lives, but I, just over the past two years, have been so challenged by the words of Jesus in this text because what I find is, is that this kind of love, this kind of mercy, this kind of laying your life down, it was contrary to the culture then, and it's so contrary to our culture today. He says this in Matthew chapter five, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. What is the idea of an eye for an eye? It says, if you take mine, I'm taking yours. It's revenge. This is God's way of doing things. It's to get even. He says, that's what you've heard, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, take them to court and sue the mess out of them, right? No, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go two. Give to the one who asks. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that. See, the way of the lamb looks entirely different to the way that the world operates. And he's saying, as you behold the lamb, you will become like the lamb. See, I believe that Jesus is doing something in his church today and his bride today that is radically changing who we are so that we could radically demonstrate who he is to the world around us. A way that pushes back on the ideas that the world teaches us that the only way to make it to the top is by trampling others or by taking it by force. But the reality is, is the way that we are successful in this life, the way that we advance the kingdom is by washing the feet of the world. It's by going low. It's by saying, hey, I'm not gonna do things how they've always been done. I'm going to reflect to you the nature of the one who is the lamb slain from the foundations of the earth. And I want you to hear me this morning as we close. I'm not talking about passivity I'm not talking about being a doormat. I'm not talking about just letting people run all over us. I'm talking about giving ourselves. I'm talking about laying our lives down. Saying, I'm giving of myself to the world. Because that's what he did. I want to close by sharing a vision with you this morning. I had a vision, I think it was about two years ago, in a time of worship and in this vision, I saw, I was on the square in San Marcos, and I saw a bunch of young people, college-age people, that's who I spend majority of my time with, and they are kind of like wandering around the square, and they're almost like in this stupor. They're kind of like fumbling around or kind of just like a very interesting vision. Now, if you've ever been to the square around like one o'clock in the morning, you know that's a common sight to see in San Marcos. 
Uh, people are really drunk at that time. But what I saw in this vision are people are stumbling their way around the square and they're just like kind of in a daze. I remember I walked up to one of, the, one of the person, I couldn't see their faces, but as I got on the other side, I saw one coming to me and their shirt was drenched with tears. They had tears running down their face and they had this mesmerizing look in their face and they were just kind of wondering. And I was like, what is happening? And I walked up to one of them and I said, what's going on? And with tears in his eyes, mesmerized, almost like completely out of it, he said, we, we've seen him. We've seen him. And I just watched as these people, full of wonder, full of fascination, just totally not even worrying about what's happening, and they're just kind of wandering around, and they are mesmerized by what they've seen. And I felt like the Lord told me in that moment, this is what I want to do. I want to reveal myself to people in such a way that they are so mesmerized, their hearts are so undone that they will look like fools, but they're locked in on me. And I, I just remember seeing the tears. I saw the tenderness. And if you know anything about young people, especially people that go out and party on the square, they're not tender-hearted, just loving Jesus people. These people were conquered by love. And it did something to my heart. And God said, this is what I want to do. I want to mesmerize a generation, a group of people that everything about them has been transformed, not by what they've done, but because of what they've seen. I want to read to you something I read to you a second ago. Beloved, I, I believe in this hour that God is raising up a church that will proclaim a more beautiful gospel. A gospel that's free from religion, a more captivating gospel, a gospel that truly astonishes the heart, a gospel that's full of fascination, full of wonder, and it will come from the mouths of those who've seen him rightly and their hearts have been conquered by the overwhelming love of the Lamb. This is what God is doing. This is what he wants to do. He wants to reveal himself to us in a way that when we see him, everything about us changes. This morning, I asked our prayer teams to be praying for people here today. And this is kind of what I want to do. Is I, I want to invite our prayer teams. You guys can go ahead and come up here. And I, I want to invite people in the room to just see Jesus more clearly. Maybe you're in the room and you're like, you know what? I feel like my view of God has been greatly uh, distorted by religion. Or maybe you would say that you have a hard time seeing God as good. Um, or maybe the part about being convinced that you're like, I just really don't think I believe what you were saying about how God feels about me. I believe this morning that God just wants to give you a glimpse of him that would change your perspective and it would actually transform something in your heart. Can we all stand up together? I wanna invite you this morning, if you just wanna see Jesus more clearly, to come down and have one of these people pray for you. If you have need for anything else, if you need healing in your body, if you need breakthrough, anything like that, we'd love to partner with you in prayer. But I just wanna invite you to come to see Jesus this morning. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are beautiful. I thank you, God, that you are better than we could have ever imagined. God, my prayer is, is that that wouldn't just be theological lip service, but that we would see you that way. God, I want to see you that way. God, I pray that you would just capture our hearts in a new way this morning, that something deep inside of us would shift as we see you rightly. 
So God, right now, I break off the lies of religion, the lies that would say that you're not good or you're not who you say you are, God, and I pray that you would break through the noise and you would reveal yourself to us for who you really are. We want to see you rightly. We want to behold you, and as we behold you, we become like you. So God, I pray for grace for us to become like you as we see you rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can come now, receive prayer from the ministry team.